When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. It's a pretty big deal to read the lyrics of a song with the person it was written about. It's an even bigger deal when that song is the hugely popular ballad Annie's Song. And that person is Annie Denver, the former wife of singer and activist John Denver. It's such a beautiful song. He wrote it for me, but it's about love and it's about nature and how that stirs those profound feelings up. You fill up my senses Like night in a forest Like the mountains in springtime Like a walk in the rain Like a storm in the desert Like a sleepy blue ocean You fill up my senses Come fill me again Denver wrote those words in 1974 while riding a ski lift here in Aspen, Colorado, after a spat with Annie, his then-wife. Decades later, the lyrics have been etched into a large river boulder displayed here at Aspen's John Denver Sanctuary. This park along the Roaring Fork River is equal parts nature preserve and memorial. Annie's song became a number one hit. Although John and Annie ended up divorcing, the song is still a staple at weddings. And yet, like so much of his work, it's tinged with melancholy. Come let me love you, let me give my life to you, let me drown in your laughter, let me die in your arms. So there's a kind of wistfulness about it, right? I mean, it goes from a sense of wonder and romance 
but then let me die in your arms is um that's the part that makes me sad makes me sad john denver died at 53 while piloting an experimental home-built aircraft he went out fast kind of went out like a shooting star and um sometimes i wonder i i hope that he wasn't scared that it all happened pretty quickly for him one of the best-selling artists of the 1970s, Denver also made his mark on the world as a TV and movie star, a humanitarian and environmentalist. But not everyone saw the depth in him, as Annie explained to CBS days after he died. I think people tended to simplify John because of the simplicity and eloquence of his, of his music, but that he was a very complex man. There was a very sad, sad part in John, and it's really the part that the, the music came from. The utter sincerity of John Denver's songs endeared him to fans worldwide, but also made him an easy target for critics who considered his music too earnest or even corny. People would be embarrassed because it wasn't cool. But there was a shining light with goodness and beauty and awe, wonder. From CBS Sunday Morning and iHeart, I'm Mo Rocca, and this is Mobituaries. This Mobit, John Denver. October 12th, 1997. Death of the Sunshine Boy. I love John Denver's voice. Listening to his greatest hits brings me a sense of peace. This sanctuary includes a different boulder for each of those hits. You don't know where things are, and then all of a sudden you look at a rock and, oh, there it is. Annie Denver and I left no stone unread. Down by the riverbank, we found Rocky Mountain High. I'm an eagle and hawk guy. And it's right over there. Shall we? Yes. <laughs> Higher up on the embankment, we found the eagle and the hawk. And he's yeah. really hitting those notes. There. I know he is. I mean, at the beginning. It's amazing, yes. Uh, don't you feel like you're flying? Where is sunshine on my shoulder? It's around the corner. Come on. Sunshine on my shoulders makes me happy. In my eyes can make me cry. It makes you just feel, at least for me, connected with the goodness in people. 18-year-old Duncan Moore was feeling the connection to John Denver the same day we were there. 
seems like he really enjoyed nature and just enjoyed all the little things in life as you can like see all the flowers and the nature park over there and the little streams and all of the songs and all of his poems. Our friends said, you must come to John Denver's sanctuary. We did not know it was here. Big John Denver fans. Dan and Susan Stefan drove down from northern Colorado. John's music and songs always struck me as being sincere. And when we moved here eight years ago, Mm. then all of his songs became really real. Mm. Rocky Mountain High. Mm. It was like, oh my gosh, here we are in the Rocky Mountains. So really, it's just kind of like regenerated our love for John Mm. Denver all over again. And it had nothing to do with smoking weed. (laughs) (laughs) John Denver was not from Colorado. He was born Henry John Dutchendorf Jr. in 1943 in Roswell, New Mexico, near the Army airfield where his dad worked as a pilot and flight instructor. John grew up moving from place to place, a shy and lonely military brat. I think much of John's life was looking for home, connection. One of his earliest memories was having a birthday party and maybe one person came. I know, I know. John told a group of Aspen kids about his childhood on a local TV show in 1977. So every time we went someplace, it was difficult to get to know people. And the thing that happened is that my guitar helped me make friends. And so I always, I wanted to have a lot of friends. I want people to like me. Things began to shift around age 12 when John's grandmother gave him her 1910 Gibson acoustic guitar. He started carrying it everywhere he went. This old guitar taught me to sing a love song. You showed me how to laugh. This old guitar, there's a line about that in it. This old guitar gave me my life, my living, all the things I love to do. That's where he felt most at home, hanging on to that guitar. Help me make it Without that old guitar in hand, John wasn't comfortable, as he would later explain in his autobiography, Take Me Home. I feel things very deeply, but for most of my life, it has been easier for me to talk casually to a thousand people than to talk openly to just one. One person he had trouble talking to? His high-achieving father, Dutch, who set at least three speed records piloting a Mach 2 bomber for the Air Force. Dutch was skeptical of John's musical aspirations. So John attended college at Texas Tech in Lubbock, where he studied architecture and played in bands. But he dropped out at 20 and moved to Los Angeles to try to make it in the city's swelling folk revival scene. He made connections and got some experience playing clubs, including a place owned by Randy Sparks, the founder of a popular folk ensemble called the New Christie Minstrels. It was Sparks who told him Dutchendorf wouldn't fit on a marquee. The first suggestion was Somerville. John eventually agreed to change it to Denver. John Denver's first big break came in 1965 when he was asked to join the Chad Mitchell Trio, taking the place of founder Chad Mitchell, who'd left to make his debut on Broadway. 
Unlike John, the trio were political, doing mostly topical satire, like a send-up of the extreme right-wing John Birch Society. Here's John performing one of the trio's satirical hits, which mocked the KKK. Yep, since we got a lawyer and the public relations man, we're your friendly liberal neighborhood Ku Klux Klan. Yes, we are friendly liberal neighborhood. Did John have politics then? No, and Mike Koblick, who was in the trio, in interviews has said well, how naive John was about so many of these things. I think he said he didn't know how to pronounce the word politics. He said politic or something like that. Clearly, it was the beginning of any activism he had later on. I started to find out that there is a lot more you can do with music on a stage than just sing it. You can make people think. You can make them laugh at things going on in the world. That's John from his autobiography again. It was a revelation to me when I could make a bridge to an audience's psyche. At this point, John wasn't yet the guy on TV with the Dutch boy haircut and the granny glasses. So when you met him, what was, where was his it hair was when you met him? It was more collegiate looking. Okay. Part, and don't forget he was with the Mitchell Trio and they were doing a lot of collegiate dates. Jack and tie. Yeah. It was at one such campus performance that John and Annie first laid eyes on each other at Gustavus Adolphus College in St. Peter, Minnesota. The college that I was going to was in the town that I grew up in. And John was giving a concert with the Mitchell Trio, and afterwards he was playing his guitar, and there were a group of people. They were doing a, a play and kind of a silly little musical, and I was the girl that carried the, the signs across the stage, Act One, Act Two. And according to John, I had a pair of blue jeans on and a flannel shirt and penny loafers. And I just paraded across the stage. And then he left, and we didn't speak. Soon enough, John was back for another college gig, and this time he invited her on a date. Before his show that night, Annie sat alone in the audience while John did his sound check on stage. It was dark, and there were lights on the stage, and it was just his voice, and this light was on him. And... He and it were so beautiful, right? And then he came over to meet my parents, and they liked him a lot. I mean, he was charming. He asked them questions. He listened. And that's how it all started. How soon did he propose? Nine months later. And then we got married within a couple of months. And with all due respect, did you know what the hell you were doing? Not at all. Not at all. No. You don't get to be as big a star as John was by accident. I mean, he was ambitious, yeah? Very. And then John had this gift, really. So I don't think I looked at it as ambition until things started happening. Things really started happening when John left the trio. Its popularity was waning fast, then scored a record deal with RCA. Pursuing a solo career drew John out of himself, but also away from Annie. In my songs, John wrote in his memoir, I was able to say things I couldn't say directly to Annie. Case in point, 
For RCA, he recorded a song he had written a few years earlier called Babe, I Hate to Go. So kiss me and smile to me. Tell me that you'll wait for me. me His producer, Milt Oaken, convinced him to change the title. Oaken passed along what was now titled Leaving on a Jet Plane to folk group Peter, Paul, and Mary. There's so many times I've let you down So many times I've played around Fans thought it was an anti-war song about soldiers shipping out to Vietnam. But John wrote it about his life on the road and its toll on his relationship with Annie. It became Peter, Paul, and Mary's biggest hit. Annie Denver remembers when John got his first check in the mail. We would drive at night and we would go by this furniture place that had antiques and there was a lit Tiffany, an original Tiffany lamp in the window. And so when we got the check, he wanted to buy a Porsche and we wanted to buy the Tiffany lamp. And we did it. And I thought my father was going to croak that that's what we did with that money. To make ends meet, Annie had been selling baby clothes at a department store in Minneapolis. But after the young couple traveled to Aspen with Annie's ski club, they decided to relocate there. Aspen back then was not the she-she place it is now. Was it a little hippy-dippy? Yeah. Waitresses wore their hiking boots, and people had long braids, and everybody was doing macrame. I, I made so much macrame. The Rocky Mountains became John's greatest muse. Funny, then, that his first big hit as a recording artist was about a state in America's other great mountain range. John Denver did not write the famous chorus to 1971's Take Me Home, Country Roads. The credit goes to his friend's husband and wife songwriting duo, Bill Danoff and Taffy Nivert. But when he sang it, the song became a worldwide phenomenon. The reason it was such a hit is people could relate to being home or coming home or this this idea of connectedness and belonging. It's been translated into dozens of languages. From Finnish to Hindi And don't forget a hugely popular Jamaican reggae version by Toots and the Maytals. One year after Country Roads came John's love letter to the first place he actually called home. He was born in the summer of his 27th year. Coming home to a place he'd never been before. He left yesterday. Rocky Mountain High is not about drugs. More about that later. 
John was inspired to write it after witnessing a stunning meteor shower from 10,000 feet up in the Rockies. You can travel in other countries and they don't quite know the Rocky Mountains, but they'll go, oh, Rocky Mountain High. Fun fact, John Denver is a writer of two official state songs, Colorado's and West Virginia's. By the time he had released Country Roads, John Denver had signed with a talent manager named Jerry Weintraub. A likely pair, John Denver and Jerry Weintraub? No. Allow me to translate for Annie. Jerry Weintraub was brash, bold, the ultimate go-big-or-go-home guy. The same year he signed Denver, 1970, he also convinced Elvis's manager to let him book and promote the King's National Comeback Tour. Weintraub later took Frank Sinatra back on the road and helped bring in the era of the Arena Concert Tour. He would eventually become a major movie producer, and he believed he could turn this easy-mannered mountaineer into the next big thing. Jerry had a vision and could see, I think, talent. He didn't create John, but he took what he saw in John and really developed it. One of the shrewdest moves engineered by Weintraub was the 1973 release of a John Denver's Greatest Hits album. Now, the album did include some genuine hits. Country Roads, Rocky Mountain High, Sunshine on My Shoulders. But most of the songs on it were new recordings of lesser-known earlier-released tracks. Not hits, but songs that would help define Denver. Like, Follow Me. Follow And rhymes and reasons. The album went multi platinum, selling more than 10 million copies. But that was just one piece of the puzzle. Weintraub was convinced that television was the key to turning John Denver into a superstar. I'd like to introduce Mr. John Denver. Denver's first TV appearance was on the Merv Griffin Show. Once from the famed Chad Mitchell trio, and now composer of one of the number one hit songs of this season. After that, it seemed like he was on TV all the time. Aren't you Denver? On the Bob Hope Show, he and the host dressed as doppelgangers. Who are you? I'm your twin brother, Irving Idaho. Denver hosted the Grammy Awards five times. The biggest night in music, and we're here live in Los Angeles with a show that's so hot it's going to pop if we don't get right into it. John Denver eventually got the ultimate show business cosign. You know, Frank, I was just thinking. A TV special with Sinatra. About the time that song was first heard, so was I. <laughs> Boy, you know how to make a guy feel mature, don't well, you? Well, no, really, Frank. I mean, Wearing his now trademark wire-rimmed glasses and sporting hair down to his shoulders, John Denver was a made-for-TV hippie, safe and fun for the whole family. Yeah, he kind of looked like a Muppet. Yes. Don't you agree? And yes. then he performed with the Muppets. Yes. Have you seen him with the Muppets? Of course I've seen him with the Muppets. I know. Through the years we all will be... He celebrated Christmas with the Muppets in 1979. Shining star up 
to really get a sense of John Denver and the 1970s, there may be no better document than his own Rocky Mountain Christmas special in 1975. Let me describe it. He performs for a live audience from inside what looks like a giant snow globe, uh, but with snow on the outside. Is this far out? <laughs> what we did, what we did is we built a transparent bubble and placed it in the middle of a snow-covered meadow in the Rockies. And in here, we've got flowers and growies and greenies and little butterflies floating around. Hi there. Yes, that's John saying hi to a butterfly that's landed on his hand. The special is a weird blend of comedy bits with stars like Valerie Harper and Steve Martin and nature scenes. Some of us are trying to reintroduce the grizzly bear into this part of the world. Ow! And uh, this is our first experiment in that regard. John wrestles with a grizzly cub at one point. It's a little nerve-wracking to watch. This little lady is a year-and-a-half-old grizzly cub, and she is a turkey. There's a sequence about the life cycle of brook trout that looks like something you'd watch in fourth-grade science. Olivia Newton-John is introduced singing on horseback. Later, she comes back for a genuinely lovely duet of Fly Away. It's star-studded for sure, but the pacing of the special is lank, even listless. I guess I'm just used to a more upbeat Jingle Bells. It's like this special predicted Jimmy Carter's infamous malaise speech later in the decade. Honestly, this whole hour feels slathered in malaise. Towards the end, during a sing-along, we see Annie looking serene in the audience, their infant son Zach, the first of their two adopted children, at her side. But everyone else in the audience looks a little dazed, a, a little glazed over, like they're experiencing their own energy crisis. It's all supremely strange and supremely 70s. And guess what? More than 60 million people tuned in to John Denver's Rocky Mountain Christmas. 60 million. Oh, the boy who'd grown up searching for home had apparently found a place in homes everywhere. Jerry Weintraub would later say, if you give Elvis the 50s and the Beatles the 60s, I think you've got to give John Denver the 70s. With Weintraub's help, the wholesome hippie had become a mass commodity. The very next year, 1976, John Denver made the cover of Newsweek, the magazine dubbing him the Sunshine Boy. But the article itself wasn't exactly sunny. He may have become a phenomenon with the public, but he was far from critics' choice. How much did that bother him? I actually think it bothered him more than he let on. I think it bothered him a lot. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. You know, I I met Julianne Moore the other day. Yeah. A terrific, radiant actress. You're kind of a Ju- name dropper. But. It's not because I, I'm, I'm not saying that we're friends yet. And our, our mutual friend who brought us together was talking to her about this podcast. Now this is really turning into a plug. And she said, who do you have coming up next season? And I said, John Denver. And she simultaneously melted and sighed and just exhaled. Oh, John Denver. And the way she said it. And I couldn't tell if it was just that I took her back to a time that at least seems like it was a safer, kinder time. Well, sure. I mean, it seems reasonable that Julianne Moore, when she was 11 years old, would have listened to John Denver. And that might have been her entry point for music. That's my pal, music writer Bill Flanagan. Unlike me and Julianne Moore, when Bill first encountered John Denver's music, he was a cool New York rock critic writing for an underground magazine. And like most music critics at the time, he wasn't filled with any childlike warmth. In fact, John's boyishness and enthusiasm are part of what he was teased for. They called him the Mickey Mouse of rock and roll, the Jimmy Stewart of folk music, the Ronald Reagan of pop. I mean, look, here's the thing. As a former recovering rock critic, if if you're sent to review a show and you think the person is insipid, then you've got to say they're insipid. But John Denver was absolutely playing for the whole family and playing a very kind of network TV version of pop music. And maybe what offended some rock critics was that he looked like a hippie. What he was doing was he was sort of taking countercultural fashion and moving it into the mainstream, the family channel, the Walt Disney world. And some people were very defensive about that. 
The 1970s were an especially rich period for singer-songwriters Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen, Carol King, Marvin Gaye. John Denver didn't fit in with any of them. John Denver came out of a folk tradition that was not exactly what James Taylor and Joni Mitchell and CSNY and the Laurel Canyon people were doing. He came out of that Chad Mitchell trio, Michael Row the Boat Ashore, Peter, Paul, and Mary, very early 60s kind of harmony folk singing, that kind of everybody sing along that had its roots in the Weavers and Pete Seeger and, you know, and kind of graduated into Christian rock, you know, kind of graduated into music to be played at the folk mass. I think John Denver has said in interviews that that is kind of what he, he grew up singing in the church choir and going to the football games in Texas. You know, it was a very kind of mainstream America, non-countercultural. He comes from a military family life. And his version of the counterculture was more to do with ecology, preserving the land, camping in the mountains, getting away from the city, which is perfectly legitimate. How big a deal was John Denver in the 1970s? Boy, in the middle of the 1970s, John Denver had about two or three years when he was huge. He was the acceptable face of the sort of hippie songwriter to mainstream America. He was family entertainment. And, you know, that's a, that's a difficult slot to fill. Uh, you know, you kind of have about one every decade, you know. But the John Denver phenomenon specifically, could that have only happened in the 1970s? Well, I think it only could have happened with a guy with a Beatles haircut and, you know, moccasins in the 1970s. But I think there's a version of it. Whatever is on FM radio and is being written about in Rolling Stone probably has a translation for mom and dad going on on television. And in the 60s, it might have been Sonny and Cher. In the 50s, it might have been Pat Boone. In the 80s, it might have been Olivia Newton-John. Somebody that middle America and all generations can appreciate. Okay, well then, and I hear what you're saying. So so let's talk about what I think you're really talking about, which is sort of the, the criticism of him, the music criticism. I'm just, I want to just read a few things. Ouch, uh, this is going to be painful, isn't it? They are. Uh, Robert Christgau, probably a friend of yours. The dean of rock critics. The legendary rock critic wrote for The Village Voice for nearly four decades. Denver is everything an acoustic singer-songwriter might be, pretty, vapid, and commercial. This in 1974, he described Denver's music as simple-minded escapism, and it compared him unfavorably with James Taylor and Carly Seinman. He finally, in 1977, called him the blandest pop singer in history. Well, clearly Robert had some anger issues. You know, you got to th- consider he's writing for The Village Voice. He's, he's, you know, very interested in what Lou Reed is up to. And, you know, he'd probably be just as tough on Andy Williams if Andy Williams had had long sideburns and wire rim glasses. I love Andy Williams, by the way. Well, that's, you know, John Denver is as much out of the tradition of Andy Williams and Perry Como as he is out of the tradition of uh, John Prine and Leonard Cohen. Boy, that 1976 cover story in Newsweek written by Maureen Orth, she says, she describes his music as the 1970s favorite snake oil in the guise of warm milk. That's assuming something that's unfair to assume, which is that he's insincere or that he's manufacturing. And, you know, who's to say manufactured music is bad? I mean, listen, my 11-year-old favorite band was the Monkees, and I still love the Monkees, and I will defend the Monkees as being a great uh, entry point 
for people who soon were listening to more sophisticated stuff. The other thing to remember is that reviews are written to be read the day after and then thrown away. And they're not meant to be pulled out as <laughs> prosecution uh, 40 or 50 years later. It's like, man, look at what Bob Christgau said. What a nasty guy. Well, we actually tried to subpoena Bob Christgau and he, to see if he would recant on any of this. And he said, no, thanks. We We're can't just, blame him. You want to hear something really mean? How can I stop you? Go ahead. This is from British rock critic Nick Kent. In 1973, wrote, John's the stereotype of the neighborhood wimp who'd get his head constantly pushed down toilets in junior high school, who spent his teenage years learning how to play old Woody Guthrie songs in the TV room while the gang was out on the street stealing hubcaps and cruising for p***, and who'd turn up at folk clubs in a denim cap and promptly have beer cans thrown at him. Yep, John Denver's sure paid his dues, as Steve Stills would say. So far be it from me to lay the proverbial mark of Cain on him for producing this unadulterated piece of organic dross. It doesn't seem impossible that Nick Kent is projecting his own childhood or teenage years onto John Denver in that piece. This is making me feel so much better. Hashtag Team Denver. Somehow, Mo, you have used your Perry Mason-like wiles to turn me into someone who is attacking my peers and defending John Denver. I may never recover from this. Bill says that John Denver was intentionally middle of the road, where you're bound to get run over. At the end of the 60s, it was a little bit like today. You know, today with the red state, blue state divide. It was the counterculture and the mainstream culture. It was AM and FM. It was Rolling Stone or Time magazine. And it felt like never the twain would meet. But in fact, the 70s was all about sort of people letting go of that anger and coming together. And, and John Denver was probably a symbol of that, but... You know, again, he was, I'm not saying he wasn't kind of corny. He was kind of corny, but that's what he set out to be. And not everybody has a thousand LPs in their collection and reads the underground press. Some people just want to hear a nice melody and a pleasant song. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. As Bill witnessed firsthand. My younger brother and sister absolutely adored John Denver. And when our mother died... She was in, my mother was in her 40s when she died. She, was, she had five kids. I was the oldest. I was 19. The youngest were 9 and 12. And the day after her funeral, I took them to see John Denver. And it was the most joyous, life-affirming experience that we could have had. And I'll always have a soft spot for John Denver for that. Because, you know, if you can imagine anything sadder than a young mother dying and leaving five children than to watch my little brother and sister just, you know, who had been, who were beyond grief-stricken, who were, who were just stunned, to watch them fall into delight listening to John Denver sing was just a, that, that's the best thing music can possibly do. And how well do you remember that concert? First time I'd ever seen really big screens at an arena concert, and suddenly the screens lit up with film of a harvester going through the fields and farmers gathering, uh, gathering hay. And um, it was magical, you know? And listen, whether it's John Denver or whether it's Frank Sinatra or, or whether it's Frank Zappa, if music can lift somebody out of the worst kind of grief at the most vulnerable moment of their life and give them something to look forward to, 
and bring joy back into the life of a grieving child. I mean, I don't mean to get all Jerry Lewis telethon here, but you know, that's a that's a very very uh, powerful thing to accomplish, and that's why you know I think if there's one thing that we probably want to come back to in talking about John Denver, it's that if music touches somebody, then great. That's that's the best thing in the world. And, and if it doesn't fit somebody else's framework or their aesthetic uh, judgment, you know, that's okay too. But it doesn't detract from the power it has for someone who loves it. And nobody should be told that they shouldn't love any kind of art if it moves them. I've thought about who John Denver would be in pop culture today had he not died. My friend, the actress Pamela Adlon, was in a TV movie with him in 1986, and she's got a really interesting theory, which I floated by Bill. Pamela Adlon said to me, if he had lived, he might have been Dolly Parton big, that kind of a oh, unifier. Oh, that's a very, very, very interesting. That, that's, that's smart, because Dolly Parton probably got the same kind of criticism at the same time as being manufactured, fake, you know, the big wig and and uh, extreme proportions and tons of makeup and singing these little sing-along songs that everybody likes and appearing in pop movies. So that's a, that's a really, really good observation that John Denver might have become Dolly Parton. He might have become as respected as Dolly Parton. And now that we live in a world where everyone reveres Dolly Parton and there is great retrospective um, affection for the Carpenters, and nobody cares about what the great rock critics of the 70s wrote. <laughs> sure, John Denver might be, uh, you know, might be getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom today. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. I just wanted to show you. Bucky. This is your meditation room. This is Bucky's 83rd 
Tom Crum is showing me around his delightful home in Aspen. It's an A-frame, kind of looks like a ski chalet from the outside. But when he and his wife first moved in in the early 1970s, it didn't even have running water. So I took a pipe, a PVC pipe, plastic pipe, and ran it up into the hills right up there near the, where you can see the gondola. I don't know if you can see it. This was just all mining cabins along here. It's a charming outlier in today's Aspen. In the backyard, a small Japanese rock garden. On the other side of the backyard fence, a $46 million mansion recently rented out by the Kardashians. How many Bitcoin billionaires come by trying to buy it? Yeah, yeah, right. I don't know. They, they, they come and go quick, I hear. The inside of Tom's house is chock-a-block with curiosities, including a 19th century cross between a music box and phonograph. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is a, a vagina phone. This is a vagina. I know the vagina phone. You do? Yes, I know about this. This is so cool. It's 1890. 1880. It's so cool. I saw one of these in Indianapolis at the President Benjamin Harrison home. And he was president elected in 1888. So it's the same. It, like, it's the same era that but this is not a mobituary for Benjamin Harrison. At the height of his fame, John Denver was struggling with loneliness and a demanding work schedule. That's when he turned to Tom Crum, who was teaching martial arts and meditation here in Aspen. Tom came aboard to help handle security, but also as emotional support for John. There's a song where he goes, I, uh, sometimes I fly like an eagle, and sometimes I'm deep in despair. I think John was one of those personalities. There's an up and down in him. So those times he'd get quiet. Yeah, he'd get dark, but also a lot of creativity came out of that. Did the songs come from the lonely place? Oh, I think a lot of them did. You know, everything that he would write about, he was so fully committed to. And that only happens when you're feeling it deeply. Tom was there as John's songs began fading from the airwaves and as John began redirecting his energy towards conservation and a host of other causes. In 1976, John and Tom bought a ranch near Aspen and set up a humanitarian organization they named the Windstar Foundation. John was no longer content to entertain the world. He wanted to change the planet. We wanted to make a difference. We wanted to affect the environment. We wanted to affect hunger with nuclear nonproliferation. We had a wind generation. We had solar retrofitting. Now, this is in 1980. The world wasn't ready. We're, you know, we're putting up solar panels. We're doing biointensive gardening. By virtue of his celebrity, John was able to commune with luminaries like Guru Ram Das, astronomer Carl Sagan, and futurist and architect Buckminster Fuller. You know, friends like Werner Earhart when he, with the S movement, which was a very big movement back in the early 70s, getting involved with that. Denver co-founded a hunger nonprofit with Werner Erhard, the controversial celebrity guru whose Erhard seminar trainings, also known as EST, promised to transform lives. 
According to 60 Minutes, Earhart was so popular in 1970s Hollywood that someone once suggested a studio be renamed Warner Brothers. Increasingly, when John went on TV, it was in support of his array of causes. Well, I'm a very optimistic person. I think it's important for people to know that we do feel we have the wherewithal, if people are willing to make the commitment, if governments are willing to make the commitment, to end hunger in our lifetime. I mean, that's incredible. You know, John was so enthusiastic. If you went to a hearing with him, let's get out of songs now and get into the political world, where he's working on the Alaska Wildlands Bill, uh, very influential there, working on the space issue, working on the hunger issue, working on environmental issues. He had all these issues. Once again, John Denver seemed to be everywhere, this time trying to be all things to all causes. And you were involved in all different kinds of causes. What does a cause have to have? What does it have to represent in order to get John Denver involved in it? Well, it's not like a cause, you know. It's, it's things that, that are, are given to me or come up for me because I am a celebrity. I have been successful and have certain things that come to people's mind when they, when they speak of my name or, or, or hear my music. To be clear, John Denver did throw himself into some causes with real commitment. From saving the ocean, he formed a deep bond with Jacques Cousteau, to exploring outer space. He was a serious contender to join the ill-fated Challenger mission. Instead, NASA went with teacher Krista McAuliffe. But in his memoir, Denver revealed that he did so many benefits and supported so many causes because he wanted so much to be liked. He said he would agree to some things not out of commitment to an issue, but because he was afraid to say no. This was no surprise to Annie Denver. Basically, he was a pleaser, wanted to make people happy. I think that was hard for him. He had a rough few years. 1982 was especially rough. Early that year, John's father, Dutch, suffered a massive heart attack and died. When John and Tom Crum were on tour, they were often flown by John's pilot father. And Dutch had taught John how to fly. Hours spent in the cockpit together began to heal their relationship. Once he was asked by John to be his pilot and to teach him to fly that jet, that's where it all shifted. That and, of course, being at concerts and seeing who John was. John mourned Dutch in song. And if so, then I sing for my father. And in truth, then, only months after Dutch died, on their 15th wedding anniversary, Annie filed for divorce. When you look back now, after you've been married for 15 years, and you decided to divorce, was that the way it had to be? Yes. Yes. She's reluctant to elaborate, understandably. But John himself would confess in interviews that he wasn't there for Annie. He was still going on the road for months at a time. And he'd been unfaithful to her. My life is way out of balance in regard to uh, the time that I had with my family and, uh, and that I have now. And, and I feel it more with the kids being teenagers now. They had built a home together in Aspen, but it just didn't seem to be enough for him. John soon suffered another painful breakup, this time with manager Jerry Weintraub, who John claimed ditched him for the movie he was producing, The Karate Kid. Then in 1985, another disappointment. When the biggest stars in music came together for African famine relief, 
Sean wasn't invited. You have been involved in hunger projects for 15 years, long before many other celebrities got on the bandwagon, so to speak. And yet you were left out of the recording of We Are the World. Were you upset about that? Well, you know, when it happened, uh, I was very disappointed. I, I would love to have been there. That hurt him deeply. He was on President Carter's Commission on World and Domestic Hunger. This guy was out there making a difference way before any of these people. And suddenly hunger, after all these years he's working on it, becomes a, a huge public issue. And he's not invited. We Are the World's producer Ken Cragen later said John Denver was the hardest artist to turn down. But it had been years since John had had a hit. He was invited later that year to Washington, D.C. to testify on an issue roiling the music industry. Sex and violence in rock and roll lyrics. And where the record should be rated X. On one side, the PTA and a group of influential women in Washington, D.C. called the Parents Music Resource Center. In September 1985, Tipper Gore, wife of then-Senator Al Gore, and other Washington wives held a congressional hearing on the labeling of music deemed obscene. Rock lyrics have turned from I can't get no satisfaction to I'm going to force you at gunpoint to eat me alive. Other witnesses included Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister and Frank Zappa. Mr. Zappa, thank you very much for your testimony. Thank you. Next witness is John Denver. Before his testimony, it was anyone's guess who Denver would side with. May I be very clear that I am strongly opposed to censorship of any kind in our society or anywhere else in the world. My song, Rocky Mountain High, was banned from many radio stations uh, as a drug-related song. This was obviously done by people who'd never seen or been to the Rocky Mountains and also had never experienced the elation, the celebration of life, or the joy in living that one feels when he observes something as wondrous as the Perseid meteor shower. Years later, in a radio interview, Dee Snyder said Denver's testimony was key. Me and Frank were very worried about what John was going to do. He was such, you know, he was like the all-American guy then. And right. we were very worried that he would turn his back on his on on rock but he did not he stood tall for us and i never got to shake his hand so it's one of my regrets but all the activism didn't change the fact that his sales were continuing to flag the public had moved on the following year in june of 1986 rca dropped john denver he was one of the top selling artists in their history but he wasn't worth what they were paying him anymore and now I'm not the biggest selling record artist in the world, and I don't sell out big arenas like I used to. And that might come around again, I, I don't know. In 1988, John married Australian actress Cassandra Delaney, and the two had a daughter. But John continued to struggle to find balance between his public and private lives. They soon divorced, and friends say he fell into depression. In a 1995 interview, John shared what he thought had happened to his career. One of the major things, I think, for me in, in that decline was uh, both my wanting to stick to the music that I do. Uh, I don't want to be told what to record by anybody. I think I earned the right to do what I do. That's where I had my big success. And uh, I'm not going to do a bunch of country songs just because somebody thinks I'm a country artist or that's what they want to sell from me. 
It was like John had lost his sense of direction. He wasn't sure where he belonged, but he no longer had the guiding hand of someone like Jerry Weintraub. In 1997, he recorded and released his 27th studio album, All Aboard, a children's train-themed album. The album earned John Denver his first and only Grammy Award, but he never got to accept it. Diving crews searched the waters of Monterey Bay for pieces of the two-seater single-engine airplane and clues to the crash. Folk singer John Denver was alone in the plane when witnesses say it just fell from the sky. And all of a sudden there was a a puff and a popping sound, and it just kind of went up a little bit and absolutely straight down, not spiraling, just absolutely straight down. John was flying with a suspended license. He'd lost it after two DUIs. But toxicology tests later showed he'd been sober that day. And at the time, Tom Crum wasn't worried about his friend's mental health. Would you worry that, you know, he might be suicidal or something? No, I didn't. I just didn't. Uh, I, I knew John. When they were on the road years earlier, Tom had seen John at his lowest. That was a tough time, coming out of a dark darkness and, and going in and knowing you're going to have to perform for 22,000 people and, and bring them up. Mm-hmm. You suddenly are singing for them because now you have to do something out there. That the performing was the antidote in a way, Absolutely. right? That made him feel better. You know, go out and make a difference for somebody and you'll feel better. But did you have confidence that he'd come through it? That he would, like, through the darker periods. Yeah, I did. I thought he was coming out of it when he died. Annie Denver's last conversation with John was just before his death. John died October 12th, 1997. And he had had been home, and he had had dinner with Anna Kate. With your daughter Anna Kate. Right. Yeah, and he called me, and he was in a great mood. John had recently sent Annie flowers for her birthday, which he did every year, even after the divorce. Oh, and even things were, when things weren't good, I always got flowers. And so I thanked him for the flowers. And then there was a long pause, and he said, this is totally indelibly etched in my heart. And he said, oh, But Annie, I love you. On Phil Donahue's show, years before their divorce, Annie described her relationship with John and his appeal to the masses. He's always been very affectionate, uh, very sensitive, to the point of being moody sometimes. Well, yeah, and you know... And it comes from, I think, stems from his loneliness. He felt a lot of loneliness, I think, as a kid. And... uh, Consequently, he's always been very warm, very affectionate. And he's, it's really so that a lot of men can't share those feelings. And John can say it for everybody because yeah. everybody feels it. They yeah. just can't share it. I think the loneliness John Denver projected was a big part of his appeal. Like he told those Aspen school kids back in 1977, he just wanted to be liked. Who couldn't relate to that? Maybe it makes perfect sense that he sang one of the most enduringly popular songs ever written about home, a song that's beloved worldwide, a 
about a place that wasn't ever actually his home. I didn't know John Denver. I don't know if he ever felt like he found home. But whatever he was searching for, that yearning in his voice, that was real. I certainly hope you enjoyed this Mobituary. May I ask you to please rate and review our podcast? You can also follow Mobituaries on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at Moraka. Hear all new episodes of Mobituaries every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Mobituaries, Great Lives Worth Reliving, the New York Times bestselling book, now available in paperback and audiobook. It includes plenty of stories not in the podcast. This episode of Mobituaries was produced by Aaron Schrank. Our team of producers also includes Wilco Martinez-Cachero and me, Moraka. Editing was by Maura Walls. Engineering by Josh Hahn. And fact-checking by Naomi Barr. Our production company is Neon Hum Media. Our archival producer at CBS is Jamie Benson. Our theme music is written by Daniel Hart. Indispensable support from Craig Swagler, Dustin Gervais, Alan Pang, Reggie Bazile, and everyone at CBS News Radio. Special thanks to Michelle Kessel, Young Kim, and Alberto Robina. Mobituary's senior producer is the incomparable Aaron Schrank. Executive producers for Mobituaries include Steve Razies and Moraka. This series is created by yours truly. And as always, undying gratitude to Rand Morrison and John Carp for helping breathe life into Mobituaries. Okay, hi, this is the end of Rocky Mountain High with about 2,000 people at the Paramount Theater, which was built in 1930. Um, It has beautiful murals. Um, So let's do this now, okay. Rocky Mountain High. 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 Thank you. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career 
And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.